Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's November 20th, 2018. I hope you all are ready for a happy Thanksgiving. And we thought we would give you a Thanksgiving special. Joined my, by my fellow cheesehead, Mike Gallagher. Congressman Mike Gallagher, how are you, sir? Uh, I am great. It is great to be with you, Charlie. Okay, now you wrote a piece for The Atlantic last week about congressional reform. And, and this is what you wrote. There's a catch about this. Not only is talking about congressional reform as a member of Congress likely to make all of my colleagues mad, it is also boring. No one wants to have me on Fox News or MSNBC to discuss the finer points of appropriations versus authorization committees. Caravans and and Kavanaugh make for better theater. So this is too boring a subject for cable television, but not for the Daily Standard podcast. I would never call what you do boring, Charlie. In fact, I'm an avid, avid listener. Um, But it is true. It's funny. I have this joke where, you know, as a freshman congressman, you sort of, you know, where the number 406 is etched on the back of my congressional pin because I'm 406 in seniority out of 535 people. Uh, I joke when I come off, off the House floor and I walk past the press, I say, sorry, sorry, I can't talk right now. But they don't really know who I am. But it's interesting. They all want to interview me. If I ever criticize the White House or another Republican, all of a sudden I get invited on all the cable news shows. And so I guess the basic argument I'm making in the piece is that while uh, boring um, and a little sleep inducing, the process through which the House operates is in some ways more important than the policies we debate. Or let me say, until we get the process right, we'll never have open and honest debates about the big policy issues of the day. Okay. Now, as an indication of things I don't know about Congress, I did not know that they have your seniority rank actually etched on your pin. So do you get a new pin now after the election? I think I'll be moving up about 100 slots. Uh, You do get a pin for each Congress has its own pin. So we're the 115th and we will shortly be the 116th. Okay. So you're going to go up. You'll be in the 300s. Or something I'll like be, that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it, the world would be my oyster at that oh, point. I mean, all, yeah. although, although you're about to go into the minority for the first time in your congressional career, this is your second term, but um, this is going to be a different experience. In fact, in the, the podcast uh, the other day, we were talking about uh, the experience that Republicans had, you know, suddenly realizing that the media didn't want to talk to them, that the only people that the folks in the media want to talk to now are in the majority. So you haven't experienced that quite yet. Well, it has the change in the last week. We were in session last week debating kind of rules for the next Congress and having leadership elections. And it was remarkable that usually the press is camped out outside of our caucus meetings, but they were nowhere to be found uh, because they were all covering the intrigue over will Nancy Pelosi be speaker. And so you're starting to see the change right now. If I have a concern, it's that we've sort of focused all of our time and energy on how do we win back the majority slash how do we raise a lot of money? And I understand that's important. I very much would like to be back in the majority in 2020, but I also don't want to waste two years in Congress doing nothing. I mean, yeah. whether you're in the minority or the majority, being a member of Congress is an awesome responsibility. And there are some areas where I think we could get some stuff done. And I just hope we don't spend it the next two years just throwing bombs on, on cable news all the time. Yeah, I want to get to that in just a moment because you had a couple of things that I that that I also found to be rather rather appallingly uh, interesting or or interesting and appalling at the same time. Before we do this, a little political, little politics. Um, you represent uh, the Fox Valley region of Wisconsin, and uh, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but when I crunch, was crunching some of the numbers last week, 
my impression was that you were the only Republican representative from Wisconsin who had not lost ground, that that in every congressional district but yours, the Democratic, quote unquote, blue blue wave had increased Democrat, the Democratic percentage. And yet you had increased the Republican margin and you, your seats uh, going back for quite a few years had always been a a swing seat. And you probably know this number. You did you get more than 63 percent of the vote? I think I was a little over 64, uh, I, which was yeah. a little bit better than what I did last time. Yeah. Uh, very contested election. And so, yeah, I was was really gratified with that. And uh, it's always an honor to represent the best part of America here in Northeast Wisconsin. And so we'll see. I'm not sure what lessons to derive from that. I, I do think, and maybe this sounds naive, that you know people, particularly here in Wisconsin, as you, you know, Charlie, they don't expect you to agree with them 100% on everything. Uh, but as long as you're kind of giving them an honest assessment of why you think about certain things. Um, I think they appreciate that. I've, I've perhaps struck a slightly different tone th- than some others of the last two years, and maybe that helped, but but I don't know. I had a great team, and they do great constituent services, and so I, I got lucky this time around. Okay, well, let, let's talk about this piece, How to Salvage con, uh, how to salvage con, uh, Congress. Uh, you write, when I was elected to the House of Representatives two years ago, I found the problems were not as bad as I had expected. They were worse. Now, of course, there are about 11 percent of Americans that think the Congress is doing a good job. You're not necessarily talking to them. But then before we get into the, the nitty gritty of, of, of congressional reform, you, you write in here that, it, that it, it's not the, the personnel of Congress. You know, uh, you know of course, they're, you know, they're, they're your usual group of, of grifters and cynics, but uh, most people are hardworking and, and patriotic. But in what way does the Congress – and its dysfunction, and let's take that as a given, reflect the American electorate and what's I, going on out there. I mean, do we, to a certain extent, get the get the politics and the and the government we deserve? I was talking about the piece last week, and, and ultimately, I think this is probably the question for which I don't have an answer, which is to say Congress is downstream from what's happening in our own communities. I gave a speech last year at a heavily progressive sort of a political reform conference, and that was the whole point I was trying to make, which is to say, you know, even even in a more functional Congress, we would still get gridlock. And by the way, that's a feature, not a bug of our system, because when the country is divided, it should be very difficult to build consensus around difficult issues, right? So that way people just don't jam things down the throat of the divided country. And so mm-hmm. you have data to suggest that increasingly people are only moving next to areas where there's ideological similarities. Uh, I think the promise of social media has proven completely bankrupt, right? It hasn't brought people together. It hasn't broken down barriers. It's just allowed people to self-select and to isolate uh, themselves and surround themselves only with voices that agree with them and reinforce their worldview rather than challenging it. And so I guess, yes, I think even if you were to enact the reforms I'm suggesting, I think it would help, but we would still confront some serious problems because at the end of the day, I mean, if you want to drain the swamp, you have to start with yourself, your, your own behavior, your own community. And it's that loss of community, that loss of um, you know, what de Tocqueville saw when he came to Green Bay, Wisconsin in 1835, uh, that is really, I think, the source of a lot of these problems that are reflected in Congress. And, and you write in this piece, which is a, it's a lengthy piece in The Atlantic, that the problem is a defective process and a power structure that whichever party is in charge funnels all power to leadership and stifles debate and initiative within our ranks. Your average member of Congress, far from being drunk on power, actually has very little of it outside a cable news studio. 
So have you talked to um, your friend Paul Ryan about all of this? Uh, uh, you you may be a you may have been a freshman congressman, but uh, you were uh, well positioned, well known in Wisconsin, and I'm guessing that the door was open. So have you ever did you ever sit down with the the Speaker of the House and say, "Wow, this is screwed up. Can we do X about it?" Well, I think uh, well certainly we had a robust debate this week about the second reform that I'm proposing, which is uh, allowing committee chairs to be elected by committee members uh, mm-hmm. rather than members of the steering committee. Uh, Paul had a very principled and smart. Um, counter argument to what I was proposing. I, I still think that what I'm proposing would be better than uh, the current regime. But I think it's important to point out uh, that Paul uh, is not someone who sought power within Congress. He was a policy-focused person for his whole career. He didn't seek out the speakership. And so I actually think Paul is the only person, by sheer force of, of personality and the goodwill he's built up, that could have gotten as much done as we've gotten done over the last two years in an institution that I think he might concede uh, is in need of improvement. And you just look back at what every speaker says whenever they get elected. And Boehner, you can check the transcripts, had all these speeches about the lack of regular order, how the legislative process has gotten completely dysfunctional, how the debates on the floor weren't real debates. And so every two years we complain about the lack of regular order. We have new people coming in that complain about how the swamp is getting swampier, but nothing seems to change it. Uh, nothing seems to change. And I think in part, while people like Ben Sass have have very adequately captured the big trend, which is to say Congress surrendering its power to the executive branch, the less explored phenomena is the evolution of the institution itself and the change from committee chair rule in the 70s to steering committee rule mm-hmm. under Democrats and Republicans accelerating in the 90s, most famously under Gingrich. And while that was well-intentioned, I just think it had some perverse consequences. Yeah, interestingly enough, of course, that was presented as a reform at the time. Now, uh, among the, the proposals you make, you know, changing the schedule, having Congress stay in uh, uh, stay in Washington, stay in session for three or more weeks at a time, as opposed to going back and forth. Um, but but I want to go right to this, how you, tra- you choose the committee chairs that you brought up, because... I guess I had sort of vaguely understood that in order to become a committee chair, you had to be a member of the team and that being a member of the team meant raising funds. But the way you describe it, it almost sounds like um, pay for play. So give give us a, a, a brief little capsule of like what it really takes to be a committee chairman. You walk in there and you basically have to lay some cash on the table, don't you? You well, so the committees you're on each have different values, right? So the A committees are known for being good fit committees to fundraise office. So if you're on Ways and Means, if you're on Energy and Commerce, if you're on Financial Services, those committees cost you more to be on because you can raise more money being on those committees, right? So the dues you have to pay to the National Republican Congressional Committee are proportional to the perceived value of your committee. And you don't get put on an A committee unless you have proven, in part by paying dues to the NRCC, that you are a team player. And I get it. I mean, this is one way in which, you know, the status quo perpetuates itself and leadership exercises power. And certainly you don't want, you know, a system where everyone's going off the reservation all the time. But if you really want to do serious committee work and serious policy work, the incentives don't necessarily push you in that direction. And I guarantee you, when people come back a week from now and prospective committee chairs are standing before the steering committee arguing to be the next role, be ranking member in our case uh, of X, Y, Z committee, 
the bulk of their presentation will be about how much money they raised for the team, not what policies they shepherded through the legislative process or what their vision is for U.S. national security or foreign policy or the tax code. Uh, it's just my observation. And again, OK, wow. I, I mean, just, just wow. I mean, wow. Um, we all knew that it was swampy, but that's that's pretty extraordinary when, when you're describing it. So if, you, if you're a young, fresh faced congressman from, say, let's just, you know, spitballing here, um, Wisconsin, and you show up and you say, um, I think that I should be on this committee because I really understand the issues and I am earnestly in favor of these reforms and these initiatives. They're going to pat you on the head and say, you know, no, that's 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 not what we're looking for here. We're looking and for I'm, how can you shake down K Street or shake down the lobbyists? Yeah. Is, th is this what you were telling I mean, me? It's it's almost a, a joke when people I mean, people have made the joke to me over the last week after I published this saying, you know, have fun being on small business and, and the science committee because well, that's the a bad one being that I'll get I'll get stripped <laughs> off of my committees right now and punished by uh, being on committees that aren't as lucrative. Um, listen, I, I, I'm sure my military background played a little bit into my ability to get on the Armed Services Committee. At least I hope I did. I made a case on the merits. Um, but it's just my observation. I think a lot of my colleagues would agree that it is not a meritocracy when it comes to getting on committees. And then certainly if you have no interest in sort of um, abiding by the status quo for 15 years so you could advance, um, th then it's a very difficult system. And so, listen, I could be wrong. I, maybe there's a better path forward. Indeed, when I proposed this in our rules meeting this week, there were some constructive counter arguments and some compromises that were put forward. But I think most people would recognize that this is sort of the big change that's happened mm -hmm. in Congress since the 70s. And again, it's been a Democrat thing and a Republican thing. And then combine that with the fact that particularly in the 90s, um, we got rid of a lot of resources that Congress has. Uh, Congress has become increasingly powerless, powerless as an institution, but then power within the institution keeps flowing to the top. And thus, we should not be surprised that people get disenchanted with the process. And rather than channeling their energy into the legislative process, they channel it all into going on social media or going on MSNBC and Fox News. And it becomes a sort of performance art. I think the piece to read uh, that really inspired me to start working on this or shaped the direction of the piece was Yuval Levin's article mm -hmm. and commentary a couple months ago that was entitled Congress is Weak Because Its Members Want It to Be Weak. And he talks about sort of the, the evolution of Congress as performance art rather than a serious legislative body. So how do you fix that? Your idea was to have committee chairmen elected by the members? Indeed. And so the goal here, and again, I'm open to a different mechanism it is is just to devolve power back down to the committees and the committee members to get buy into the legislative process find some way to incentivize people to burn their calories on doing serious committee work let's start with just showing up to your committee hearings that would be a good start let's start with just reading the bills before you vote on them that would also be i think a minimum criteria for success uh, in congress so some way to devolve that power you're suggesting that's not the norm you're suggesting that is not the norm I am suggesting that is very much not the norm right now. Um, and it, it, there may be other uh, reforms that are necessary. I think, in fact, I, I allude to some broader proposals that are out there right now. For example, the Problem Solvers Caucus has a break the gridlock package uh, that I've endorsed. I think there's a lot of good things. For example, even if you're not on the Committee of Jurisdiction, you would still want a way to move legislation uh, that fall under the jurisdiction of committees you're not on. So. You can imagine a rule whereby if you're able to get, let's say, 290 co-sponsors, you would be guaranteed a committee hearing 
and uh, a vote on the House floor. And that way, a small group of people can't completely stop the legislative process. I also think it's worth taking a hard look at the rules under which the Rules Committee operates, which dictates Mm -hmm. how things come to the floor. My understanding, based on something the parliamentarian has told me, that this is the first Congress in modern history where we didn't actually have an open rule on debate. And as I I think I, I allude to in the piece, a lot of members like this because the Rules Committee and leadership will protect them from taking tough votes. Right. But I think I mean, if you're in Congress, you should be prepared to take tough votes. And I think your constituents would like that if we could kind of get the legislative process working again. So, again, this is just one idea for devolving power back down to the committees and quickly. And I know I'm going on here, Charlie, but Mm. the reason you want, I think, most action to take place in the committees is that, one, that's where you can really develop the expertise necessary to conduct effective oversight over an executive branch that has grown so complex and so large that it takes a lot of time and energy to understand just what the heck it's doing. And then two, I actually think the committee process creates the best opportunity for whatever the buzzword of the day is, bipartisan, transpartisan, just just responsible policymaking where there's buy-in from the members rather than rushed legislation at the last second that circumvents regular order. So I just think there's value in the committees being reinvigorated uh, and I think it's long over time. And if you look at the really mm. the most successful period of congressional reform, it happened in the 40s and it was led by a Wisconsinite, Bob LaFollette Jr. And he they basically did this great job of consolidating the committee structure and reinvigorating reinvigorating the committees as the main arena for competition in Congress. Hmm. Well, you do mention that you're on the House Armed Services Committee. You mentioned that before. And that uh, that committee is the exception to what you've been describing. You uh, mark up the National Defense Authorization Act, and you point out that obviously there have been disagreements in the past, but for 58 years in a row, the final bill has passed with an overwhelmingly bipartisan margin because the committee members feel the process is honest, and obviously uh, members of the House have learned to trust them. Now, you're, you're focusing on the committee. What about things like the Hastert rule or the, the way in which uh, the House has operated where – um, it takes a majority of the majority to bring something to the floor, which often means that legislation that might pass with a huge bipartisan majority never gets to see the light of day because you have a minority of the full House of Representatives that is able to hold that uh, hostage. Wouldn't that be something that would break the logjam of, uh, of, of partisanship in the House of Representatives as well? I'm completely open to that. And the problem solvers package really gets at that. Um, again, I just think you have to let the body work its will. Uh, I mean, the, the, the House is a majoritarian body and you got to have a system where when people are co-sponsoring bills, they're actually prepared to vote on it should it come to the House floor. I actually think if you let the body work its will right now, there would be so many bills that would come to the floor that you'd have a lot of members that sponsored it thinking they never actually have to vote on it asking for unanimous consent to get their name off the bill. And that's just an illustration that of just how used we've become to uh, irregular order. I mean, irregular order has become the norm right now. And so, so a lot of anything- so a lot of it is 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 a kabuki dance. It is a kabuki dance for public consumption, but not exactly designed to get anything done. Yeah, and that's not to say stuff doesn't get done. I mean, in the House, we, we passed a lot of legislation that, that you know, is just dying a cold uh, uh, or a slow death in the Senate. And I think I freely admit at the end that I don't have a, an answer for the Senate. Um, but most of what you see on the House floor 
is Kabuki Theater. And I really just would like to walk into the house chamber and feel like I'm entering an arena of genuine intellectual combat. And if you're channeling energy and ambition and power structures outside of Congress, I think it has a host of unintended secondary and tertiary consequences. And again, I, I, I just always come back to this, that the fundamental distortion of our constitutional system in the modern era has been how Congress has neutered itself. And it shouldn't surprise us then that our politics basically has become presidentially focused. And every four years, we seem to await the coming of a messianic presidential figure mm -hmm. who's going to solve all our problems. I love reading, particularly when I'm in conservative groups, uh, I think Politico has this running commentary that's called Five Things Trump Did This Week While You Weren't Looking. <laughs> and if you're conservative and you read it, it's great. It's all, it's all good stuff. It's stuff you like. But then I try and make the point, no, you shouldn't like this because it can be undone by a President Warren or a President uh, Spartacus Booker or a president, you name it. I mean, it, it's all through executive order. And we didn't like it when Obama was doing it that way. And how you do things in a republic matters just as much as what you actually do. OK, now, this is an important point. And, and I guess uh, I, I've wondered why there has not been more institutional jealousy on the part of the House and the Senate. Uh, about the usurpation of its powers by the executive. I mean, there was certainly a time, even when Franklin Roosevelt was was president, uh, the first of the great imperial presidents, where members of the the Senate and the House really just decided, as a, as a matter of constitutional, um, institutional tradition, power balance, that they were going to draw red lines, and that seems to be happening less and less, as you point out, with both parties, but. Is is this you know what 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 is your your sense after after a term there why the Congress would be so willing to give up its power when one would think that it would be the normal jealousy for its power that would provide the impetus for a check and balance? Well, indeed, if you sort of examine um, the uh, not not only the Constitution but uh, the Federalist Papers, uh, it's my yeah. understanding that the framers were most concerned that. The legislative power would necessarily predominate. Predominate. My understanding as well, and, and again, check me on this by listeners that are smarter than me, that the phrase co-equal branches of government doesn't even enter the lexicon until hmm. the late 60s and the 70s. And it really was a, a sort of a creation of the Nixon administration intended to elevate the presidency relative to the other branches. But again, I just heard that from a smart person one time, and I didn't actually burn the calories necessary to check it. Um, so as to why that has happened, um, listen, I think a few things. When when you put most of the federal government uh, on autopilot, um, you're 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 basically taking away the power of the purse, right? We had this these knockdown drag out debates over how much money we're spending on helicopters versus on Meals on Wheels. And don't get me wrong, those are important. Every dollar we spend of the taxpayer money um, should be thoroughly reviewed, but it completely ignores the broader budgetary picture which is the 70% that is Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, which isn't subject to a normal budgetary review process. It just goes completely out the door. And I'm not sure when we did things that way uh, that we fully thought through the implications. Um, the 1974 Budget Control and Empowerment Act um, created a very dysfunctional budget process. And ironically, it was intended to claw back authority from the executive. And similarly, on the foreign policy side of the equation, since the passage of the War Powers Resolution, uh, which passed over Nixon's veto, um, every president has basically uh, found ways to circumvent it. Um, and we have situations in, in modern history under Clinton, uh, under Obama, and uh, under Trump right now, you could argue in Yemen, uh, whereby we are engaged in some form of warfare 
Um, but the Pentagon is arguing that it has not crossed the threshold into warfare, and therefore we haven't triggered the war powers resolution. So we've basically just given a blank check um, to the executive on matters foreign and domestic. And I think it's a it's a, a, a big story and unintended consequences. Well, I'm um, talking with Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, and I want to talk to you about uh, how Paul Ryan is going to be remembered, what his main um, legacy will be. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Quip. When you think about the perfect gift, you probably don't think of an electric toothbrush. But the Quip electric toothbrush is one of the most gift-guided gifts of the season. And here's why. It is perfect for everybody with a mouth. And it's something they'll use twice a day. And here's why it is great. Sensitive sonic vibrations, gentle enough on your sensitive gums, built-in timer with guiding pulses to remind you when to switch sides. It makes holiday travels clean and easy with a multi-use cover that mounts to mirrors and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. It does not require that chunky charger, and it runs for three months on one charge. Inquip is the gift that keeps refreshing with brush heads automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks. And you can even gift prepaid refills for a year to make sure they're never using old, worn-out, or effective bristles. I got to tell you, I love having these things delivered. I love having a toothbrush that tells me, you know, how long I need to brush. These are things I don't think about on my own. So, again, this is why they have more than 5,000 verified five-star reviews Quip looks like a big-ticket uh, tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just 25 bucks. And if you go to getquip.com slash standard right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush, but you don't have to tell your gift giftee that. That's just between us. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. Okay, Mike Gallagher, um, you've known Paul Ryan for a long time. You've served with him. You've served under him. He goes out with a very mixed legacy. And, you know, I was on um, I was on C-SPAN the other day with Craig Gilbert from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And it was interesting how the callers were sort of lining up to beat him up from both the left and the right. That a lot of the pro-Trump Republicans just uh, are extremely reluctant to give him any credit for the things he passed, things that they would normally credit Trump with, and of course, uh, Democrats continue to, uh, to dislike dislike him. And yet, the Paul Ryan that you and I know was probably one of the most thoughtful, promising, and important political leaders of his generation. So, how, how do you balance it? What will his legacy be? Well, I think for those who are loath to give Paul credit for all of the good things that have happened over the last two years. Uh, I think they're wrong because just having seen it from the inside, none of it, uh, whether it's tax reform, whether it's the military rebuild, whether it's the companion deregulatory effort that we've had in the House, whether it's VA reform, take your pick. And I'm not saying we've gotten everything done. Uh, obviously, my my fundamental sort of perspective as one of three millennials in the House is that we are collectively punting on some of the bigger generational issues that we have. But none of that stuff that everybody has been campaigning on for the last three months would have been possible without Paul Ryan. Uh, there was no one else that could have held the caucus together at a time like this. And I know that, you know, you've probably been critical of the way he's handled yeah. Trump, but I'm just telling you, this is an impossible job. He did not seek it out. And uh, when he was asked to serve by his peers, he stepped up at an incredibly difficult time. And uh, I think he deserves credit for that. And so at the end of the day, I suspect his legacy won't be this or that particular piece of legislation. I think it will be as the rarest of people 
who's able to operate at the highest level of politics for a long time and keep his decency intact. I mean, we can quibble with Paul about this policy or that. There is no arguing with the fact that he is a thoroughly decent human being and a great family man. And uh, I think that's an inspiring message and a hell of a nice guy. And we need more of that in politics these days. So your party lost 40 or roughly around maybe just sort of uh, 40 seats in the House of Representatives and, of course, control for the first time in eight years. Why do you think the voters threw you out of power? Uh, My own perspective, maybe this is too cute given the piece that I wrote, but I was saying it since the beginning of uh, this Congress was that, you know, we had all these big promises to to drain the swamp. And indeed, I always remember campaigning in Kiwanee County up here. And I gave my spiel. I knocked on a, a lady's door and she said, basically, get away. I don't like Republicans. I never vote for Republicans. And uh, as I was walking away, she said, but I am voting for Donald Trump because he's going to shake things up. And that sense of really wanting to shake the system up was palpable in at least my part of Wisconsin. And I'm not sure, you know, while we can claim that you know, deregulation is not only economically good, but is a form of draining the swamp. We never really did a deep dive on, you know, the source of the swamp and how we could reform the institution of Congress. And I think we really missed an opportunity there. I do think sort of tactically we may have missed an opportunity to tie, for example, repatriation of money overseas via tax reform to a big infrastructure investment. But other than that, I mean, this was not necessarily outside the historical norm. It's always difficult Mm -hmm. for a president's party to uh, maintain power. And then Wisconsin, I mean, as you know, Charlie, it was a really interesting dichotomy where, you know, unfortunately we lost uh, the gubernatorial race, but the entire congressional delegation held serve and we did quite well in the assembly and the state Senate. And so I'm not sure the voters are sending a clear signal right now. It was a mixed signal, if nothing else. It certainly, yeah, it was more like a tornado rather than necessarily a tsunami. Well, your part of the state is actually, as, as you described it, has, uh, I would, I would say relatively Trumpy, the Republican voters, and, and yet, and you can push back on this, by the way, um, and yet you have certainly not been, you know, you haven't been a, a never-Trumper, but you certainly have not been um, completely Trump, and, and, and yet you did better than the average Republican. So how does a Republican like you thread the needle in the next two years? What do you have to do? Well, I, I mean, if I thought I figured it out, I would, I'd probably be a, a rich man at this point. Uh, well, you got 64 percent of the vote, so you figured something out. <laughs> well, I've certainly screwed up a lot. And um, it's uh, I, I think the answer is probably for everyone just to spend less time on Twitter and Facebook uh, and focus on other things. But um, well, I'd say, well, one on, on the district, uh, it, it is really interesting. Um, it, it went for Obama, I think, by eight points in 2008. Romney won it narrowly in 2004. Uh, and then Trump won it by, I think, 11 or 12 mm-hmm. uh, in 2016. And it was held by a Democrat from 2006, 2008 at the congressional level. So it has been interesting. I think there are a lot of Reagan Democrats here, a lot of you know hard hat wearing you know, and pipe fitters and, and union folks that did vote for Trump. Um, but it's it's I think perhaps in Wisconsin more broadly, you know, Republicans may have convinced themselves because of Walker's success that the state was naturally trending red. And I don't think that's the case just Mm -hmm. because Wisconsin's always been a complicated mix. And so I just try and sort of pick my priorities. I try and listen to people. And again, I think though, if you turn on the TV, it's all Trump this, Trump that. I I think my constituents want me to focus on doing my actual job in the House. And so I'm an Article One Republican more than anything else. I have a separate responsibility in the House. Uh, I want to work with the White House to achieve good policy outcomes. But 
if I disagree with what they're doing, I also have a duty to be honest about that. So I don't know. I just try and stay focused on my job and uh, and not consume too much uh, Twitter. And that's how I stay sane and perhaps how I got reelected. I don't know. Mike Gallagher, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Uh, the piece is still up at the Atlantic.com website, How to Salvage Congress. And apparently you haven't been excommunicated by your colleagues. So that's the good news, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still time for that, I guess. So there's we'll see what happens. Time. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Congressman. And have, have a very happy Thanksgiving. And thanks for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.